So if you would, open your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1 as we conclude our study of the Gospel. Even though we'll never finish speaking about the Gospel, we'll conclude our temporary uh, extreme emphasis on the Gospel, if you will. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through uh, Romans 1 verses 1 through 18. And if you would, at home, please stand, and we will read these verses together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So many might be wondering why we haven't diverted from our set preaching plan Uh, when this disaster struck, um, that was a question that I asked myself, should I can this series and begin preaching on something else? But I think that the Gospel always increases in relevance. The Gospel always becomes more important, no matter what happens. Even if nothing happened with a virus this year, or things got better and better, It doesn't matter. The gospel always becomes more relevant, especially in times of turmoil and trial. The gospel is more relevant than ever, primarily because we're running out of time. If Christ is to return this year, 10 years from now, 10,000 years from now, regardless, we are running out of time. And as individuals, we are running out of time. There is a day appointed for us all to die, and then we will meet our Maker. So the Gospel provides us a way to be made right with our God, before whom we will stand, and we are running out of time. So the Gospel, even in times like this, is the most relevant message there is. And it is in the Lord's good providence, I believe, that we are here with this topic at such a time. So just to recap the series that we have gone through, we began in February 2nd, if you can remember back that far before everything changed for us. We began with simply the Gospel, answering the question, what is it? 
And then the next Lord's Day, we discuss the phrase, ashamed of the Gospel. Why would Paul feel the need to clarify that he's not ashamed of the Gospel? And then we talked about the Gospel being the power of God for salvation. That it's not other things, it's not mystical workings elsewhere, it's not signs and wonders working in different people's lives. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. Then the next week we looked at salvation. What, what are we even talking about? Are we talking about just a better perspective on life? A, a, a better way to treat your wife so that you have a better marriage? What is salvation? And what is it even that God is bringing through the Gospel? Next we looked at the great promise that the Gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. So the universality of the offer, but the exclusivity only to those who believe. Next, we looked at God's righteousness being revealed. And that the Gospel uniquely reveals God's righteousness in, in both making sinners righteous, showing that God is righteous, promising the revelation, the final revelation of God's righteousness, and many other things. And then we looked at faith. What is faith? And distinguishing that from many misunderstandings of what faith is. It's not just believing facts about Jesus. It's not merely having good theology or believing that God exists. What is biblical faith? It is trust in a person. It is entrusting your whole self to Christ Himself. And then last week we looked at the quotation from Habakkuk 2.4, which is what Paul quotes in verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. And hopefully that was encouraging to you as we look at, even in, in some ways similar to Habakkuk's time when disaster is approaching, and maybe even on its way and at the door, and he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will glory or rejoice in the God of my salvation. So, I hope just in giving you that review or that recap that the things we talked about and why they were important have kind of rushed into your mind again. Just to remember and to think about all that we've talked about. And it's not overestimating such a focus on the Gospel uh, than to say that this should be the way to provide for you a way to have a ton of things figured out. This Focus on the gospel, accomplish, if, if you've been listening, if you've been paying attention, if you've let it have its effect that, that the Bible gives to the gospel, you are able to answer several questions. What's wrong with the world? What is really wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? What should my life be about? What is God up to in the world? How can I live a life that pleases God and at the same time results in my joy? What is my identity? What is my worth? Where is my worth? What does it mean to be a mature Christian? And so many other things. All of those are condensed or answered or find their final resolve in the Gospel itself. The Gospel is that far-reaching and that dynamic if you focus on it, if you understand what it means. So, after going through that recap and mentioning all that this should have already answered for you, you might ask the question, what do we have left to talk about? We've covered the whole passage, haven't we? Um, Am I just being insensitive to what's going on to not immediately change to something else now that we've covered the whole passage? Or is this just another case of me over-explaining everything? No. No. The final question I want this text to answer for us is this. How does the Gospel unify the church? And I've been saying this almost every week. Um, The two emphases for our church that I extended to you at the beginning of this year was discipleship, growing in maturity in Christ, and unity in the Holy Spirit in the Gospel. And the Gospel sets the agenda or clarifies what unity ought to be and what it ought to look like. I've been saying it every week. 
Why is this important? Why, why spend a whole week answering this question? How does the gospel unify the church? Because as we saw uh, several weeks ago, back in January, the unity of the church, of those who believe in Jesus and trust in Him, is Jesus' missiology. And if that's a word you haven't heard before, let me tell you what it means. It means the way that we do missions or the way that we reach the world with the good news of Jesus. The unity of the church is the way God is going to do this. This is from John 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me. This this passage has changed everything about how I see church and what we're supposed to be doing. Because we can get so clever and we think we're so smart and we try to figure out ways to reach people and explain things to people. But Jesus is praying to the Father, here is how I want you, Father, to convince the world this isn't one day going to happen in heaven. It will be the case in heaven. But Jesus is praying that it would be the case here while the world is watching us so that the world would know the truth of what we're talking about. That you have sent me and loved them as you have loved me. So how? How can we get that kind of unity? And just a full stop here, just for you to ask yourself at a real deep heart level, do you even want that kind of unity? Do you strive for it? Do you understand that the way that God is going to convince the world that He has sent Jesus and we are His people is by our love for one another? And are you willing to break outside of your comfort zones in the way of life that you've established that is so nice and uh, manageable for you to risk loss, to risk relationships, and to risk personal injury for the sake of unity in the church? Do you want it? Some of you might be completely content with the life that you have with your way of interacting with your friends, with your spheres of influence. But love of the brothers, or love of your brothers and sisters in Christ, is the first tangible, outward, real result of being born again. You can see that in so many places. Just go to 1 John. Um, That's basically the whole thrust of the book. So I hope you can see why this Sunday is the perfect Lord's Day to talk about this. This is the perfect Sunday to talk about unity. Do you feel it? Do you sense sitting in your home that there is something missing? That there is real loss? That you can't be in community with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Like, yeah, sure, maybe you're in your homes, maybe with a few friends, but do you sense that there's, there's, there's a real loss here? Even though it might be more comfortable for you and your, your snacks are just a few steps away, hopefully the Spirit is, is groaning even in your heart right now as you sense, I, I haven't seen so-and-so in several weeks. I haven't talked of the Word of God with my brothers and sisters in Christ, the members of my church for a long time now. This is why I question when, when someone is able to and feels just fine not attending church for weeks on end, I have to question what is going on in your heart? You haven't been in community with the brothers and the sisters. This is, this is the first result of being born again. And it's not because I'm simply a pastor. I just want people to belong and have what God has promised for them and show to the world the kind of love and unity we're supposed to have. So this is the perfect opportunity, sitting at home, not able to gather. This is the perfect opportunity to test whether or not what you have with your church is real. 
with the increase of difficulty and trial in the world, in the world and the loss of being able to draw near to each other, do you sense the need for this kind of love and unity? The best analogy I've heard so far is like a military family. Imagine the, the father, husband on deployment, and maybe they're able to Skype or FaceTime even every day. Maybe they're even talking with, the, the kids are talking with their dad more than they did when he was at home in terms of time. But who would trade that for the presence of their father returning from home or their husband returning from home? So, we'll spend the rest of our time answering this question. How does God unify the church in and through the Gospel? And we're going to Restrict it just to these 18 verses in Romans 1. And there, there are, I, I think, around 10 ways that I was able to see in these verses that God uses the Gospel to unite His church. Number one, God, through the Gospel, unites all the people of God. If you look back in verse to which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then you can fast forward to the verse that we spent a great deal of time looking at, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's not one plan for saving the Jews and another plan for saving the Gentiles. And it's not that God had one plan to save the Jews and that didn't work out. And so that He introduced plan two and then that saves everyone. It's always been the Gospel. He promised the Gospel beforehand through His prophets. The Gospel then unites all the people of God. Going all the way back and going all the way into the future, it will always and has always been by the Gospel. The Gospel is not new to the New Testament. For the good news to actually be good news, it has to be good news from a God who did not fail. It has to be from a God who gives all His people a sure and steadfast way to be saved. This is one of the main points of Romans. That God is, is able and strong enough to save everyone. It's not like He failed and this is round two and so Gentiles coming into this thing are like, well, He failed with the Jews, so how can I be sure that this Gospel thing, this whole Jesus thing is actually going to work? That it's going to keep me in? The point that Paul makes in Romans is this is how he has always been saving people. It's through faith in God. Trust in Him that He would deliver on His promises. So, this is something that might cause a little bit of controversy, but I'm never going to stop saying it. There are not two peoples of God. There is only those who are in Christ. Ephesians 2 Verse 14 and 15, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And in Romans 4, 16 and 17, That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. How does this create unity for us practically today? Because we, we, we don't sense the Jew-Gentile divide. Most of us at least. But if the Gospel is strong enough, is powerful enough, is just enough in general to bridge the profound division between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile and to create one new man, one new family of God, then ponder, just think how much we disrespect and dishonor the Gospel and profane it with our thoughts to think that it can't bridge the gap between such Smaller, trivial divisions. Like age, gender, class, pay gap, background. 
Or if you think that the gospel isn't enough to reconcile relationships. Maybe with your wife, your husband, your children. You think, well, that's all gone. There's no hope. If the gospel isn't enough, this is the point, if the gospel isn't enough to unify us, nothing can. We can try to try and bring unity on any other grounds. And this is why I'm so frustrated. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a little keyed up today because this is so important. When we make the grounds of our unity any other thing, like a church that's particularly suited for a certain type of people, Right? You know what I'm talking about. That there are churches that are built with the whole plan being we're going to reach this kind of person or this kind of person. We'll decorate it and we'll have events that appeal to that type of person specifically so that those type of people will come together and feel real comfortable and then we'll introduce them to Jesus or maybe we've introduced them to Jesus all along. But that glue that holds them together is, are those cultural similarities. That's damnable. Because it communicates that the gospel isn't enough. Stop! It's like a froyo shop. You go in and you, you pick your flavor, you know, one or two or three, and you get your toppings, and that, that custom fitted bowl of frozen yogurt is, is your church. And you pick it based on your preferences and dislikes and likes. That's not the gospel. So stop it. Stop supporting those churches. Stop viewing the success of those churches as the success of the gospel. It's not. Second, God, through the gospel, gives us a king. I want you to feel the significance of this. Where is this in the text? Which He promised beforehand, this is verse 2 through his holy through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from david according to the flesh jesus is the son of david and if you could just feel and understand the significance of this for yourself God's promise to David is that he would never lack a man on the throne and that the kingdom of David's son would continue forever. Christ reigns. And if you listen to the songs that I put together uh, for you to stream and listen to beforehand, one of the songs is Rejoice! The Lord is King! Jesus Christ is King! He says to His disciples as He's about to be taken back up into heaven, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to Me. He calls Himself the Son of Man. That's from Daniel, referring to the One who comes before the throne of God, appearing as a Son of Man, and He is given authority over all the nations to rule them with the rod of iron. So how does this create unity that Jesus has given to us as King? I don't know if I need to underscore with our current situation how leaders can polarize a people. How you have people who follow the leader and people who hate the leader. And it's only getting worse. But here's the thing. King Jesus has no character flaws. No limit in wisdom. No limit in power. No limit in gentleness. No limit in His mercy. No limit in the blessings that He's able to give to His people. And He doesn't have to raise taxes to pay for it. Do you view Him this way? As King? Or is He your biblical genie in your mind? That you go to your spiritual life coach to help you through difficulty and deal with tough stuff? He's your King! And He's worthy of all your devotion and your best efforts your entire life in service to Him. And I understand, if you've, if you've been a part of this church since we came here, I, I know I talk about this a lot, and I'm sorry. But I don't know of a more overlooked, more practical biblical truth than the fact that Jesus reigns now as King. And He can be your King. He is your King. 
now and forever. And His kingship over you. This is the main thing to take away from this. That His kingship over you, the practical implications of that, and how you can view Him are more real than your citizenship as a United States citizen. It's more real. Because it's eternal. It's never going to end. And here's the thing. I feel the need to clarify this. Jesus being king will create unity with the church. If we, if we all together see him as king and treasure him as king and that he, his glory and his rule is, is present and tangible and palpable in our gatherings, that will create unity in the church, but it will create disunity with the world. Profound disunity with the world. James 4.4, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And Jesus Himself says in Luke 12, do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? Well, yeah, Jesus, that's what the angels said, right? When they showed up to tell the shepherds um, that you were arriving, peace on earth, right? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, one house in one house there will be five divided. Three against two, two against three, and they will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Who do you get along with better? Christians or non-believing friends? Who do you like to spend time with more? Who, who do you spend time with and it refreshes your soul more? Is it those who are redeemed? Or is it those who are not? Who do not claim Jesus as King? But if Jesus is King of your life, if in a church, in a community of faith, if He is sung as King, celebrated as King, worshipped as head of the church, and ruler of all the nations, Lord of every moment, then your unity flourishes. So the Gospel, God in the Gospel, gives us a King. Us, together. It's not your personal King to relate to. It's all of our King. Number three, God in the Gospel gives us a common mission. So He says, for the sake of His name among all the nations. This is verse 5 near the end. For the sake of His name among all the nations. Paul is committed to this. And in fact, he is writing this letter to the church in Rome to gain support. This is kind of like a letter of recommendation that Paul is writing for himself. He's basically saying, see, I'm orthodox and the gospel I preach is is dynamic and beautiful enough to solve all your problems that you're having within your church. Therefore, I need your support to get to Spain so that I can preach the gospel there. This is the heart of missions and the Great Commissions, the, the Great Commission. It is the sake of Jesus' name. That is our common mission. That is what unifies us. You must get the ordering right. It is not primarily about, I know this might frustrate some of you, I'm sorry, this is just basically biblical. It is not primarily about salvation of individuals and then later on the glory of His name. It is primarily about the glory of Christ's name and because of that, people must be saved. So one of my favorite pastors said, missions exist because worship doesn't. That needs to be your heart motivation when you view a non-believer, not just pity. There should be pity in your heart towards them. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Not just feeling sad or sorry for them, but feeling a sense of the glory of Christ and His namesake. You must worship Christ as well. He deserves your worship. It should bother us that there are thousands of people Everywhere, millions, billions even, people everywhere who do not bow the knee to our Messiah. I've told you this story before. Two missionaries after the Protestant Reformation 
Um, near the Industrial Revolution, they essentially sold themselves into slavery so that they would be shipped on a slave trader ship to sugarcane plantations in the Caribbean so that they could preach the Gospel to the slaves there. And as they're leaving, these are teenagers, as they're leaving, their families are standing on the dock weeping because they know they're never going to see them again. They cry out, Shall not the Lamb who was slain receive the full reward of His sacrifice? That's their motivation. The glory of Christ. We don't have time to look at it in detail, but in Matthew 22, you have the parable of the wedding feast. And the whole motivation is that the father is throwing this banquet for his son's wedding and the guests don't want to come. They're all distracted by many different things. And he sends out his servants, bring in anyone you can because my son's wedding feast will be full. That's the heart of God in missions. That should be our heart, that Christ deserves the worship of all peoples. When the treasure is Christ, and you love Him, and you have joy in His name, and when that is driving you, you don't have to muster up love for people or skill to reach them. It will already be there. Jesus, when Jesus becomes a means to an end, we lose the heart of missions. We lose the heart of the gospel. If we present it as, look at what Jesus can do for you, that's horrible. And it's no different than one of those stands at the malls. Whenever we're able to go back to malls again, you'll know what I'm talking about. Those stands of the salesmen setting up their product. Like, hey, do you know what this product can do for you? It'll give you softer hands. Do you know what this product can do for you? It'll save you money on your, your cell phone bill. Do you know what this product can do for you? It'll make you look real stylish. No. Rather, Behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel. He deserves your unending love and trust. Be reconciled to God today. This is the exact flavor of Peter's message at Pentecost. This common mission, this namesake of Christ, the sake of his, for the sake of His name among all the nations, is simple and beautiful enough and dynamic enough to unite all of us. All of our efforts, all of our works, all of our passions, all of our life plans into this one glorious goal. It has often been said, there's no limit to the good that you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. Let me make it Christian. There is no good that can be done unless Jesus gets the credit. That's the point. Whatever your life is about, whatever you deem your talents to be, whatever you desire to do with your life, if it is not for the namesake of Christ, for His glory, it's worthless and will burn even if you yourself are saved. To make Jesus famous among all the nations, in your schools, at your workplaces, with your neighbors, that's the goal. God has you in those interactions at the church where you belong so that you would make Jesus famous. When you live this way, when you deeply commit to live this way, and the delight and the glory of Christ bursts out of your heart, then someone who loves the same thing, you have created with them a deep and abiding bond of affection and willingness to help them however they need. Because you know that in helping them, you're helping them succeed in, make Jesus, in making Jesus famous. Number four. God in the Gospel gives us a united identity and calling in Christ. For the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then he says, who are loved by God and called to be saints. I won't linger here because I talk about this all the time, um, but it's particularly clear in these passages 
And I would say diversity is good and fine, but if it causes uh, disunity, or here's one of the ways that diversity can cause disunity. If you disagree on what it means to be a Christian, if you disagree on what it means to be a mature Christian, if you disagree about what it, why it is that we're even still on this planet after being saved, if you disagree about what the most important thing about you is and about a person is in general, that creates this unity. So this is a word to everyone, but especially young people. All of the big questions in your life. Who are you? What is your life about? What does it mean to be a Christian? All of those are answered and found in Christ Himself. If you're in Christ, if you trust Him, all of it is answered in these three phrases. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. Loved by God. Called to be saints. That's really all you need. Regardless of how old you are, or young you are? Do you understand how simple and specific this is at the same time? This sets your life in a completely different trajectory. If you understand at the deepest level, I belong to Jesus Christ. I am loved by God and His calling on me is to be holy. And everything else that you would want to do with your life and everything else that you would want to spend your energies on, it just pales in comparison. It's, it's tiny. It's minuscule. And all of those things should be used to help you accomplish and live in accordance with those three things. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. Loved by God. Called to be holy. And this creates a massive causeway for unity in the church. Because if we can really see that for ourselves, and we understand that because we're in Christ, those three things are the most important things about us, then when you encounter a brother or sister in Christ, even if they don't see it that way, you know it's really true of them and your affection for them grows. This is one who belongs to Jesus Christ. This is one who is loved by God. This is one who is called to be holy and you'll devote yourself to make sure they can see that and have the freedom and joy that comes from living that way. Even with non-believers, through faith, a person can enter into those three things. Repent and believe in the Gospel and these things apply to you. How much love flows from you towards non-believers that I want you to have this, not just, you know, I want you to escape hell and have these benefits that maybe comes with, with being a part of a church and attend our Bible study or whatever. I want you to belong to Jesus Christ. I want you to be under the love of God that it is, is especially concentrated in Christ towards those who believe in Him. Number five, through the Gospel... God gives us unifying desires. Where is this in the text? He says in verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. These are people that he'd never met. He'd never been to Rome. He says that very clearly. And he longs to see them and he wants to minister to them and he wants to encourage them and he wants to be encouraged by them. And the gospel invites us into, causes us to enter into a relationship with people that we've never seen that gives you desires and affections for them that you can't explain yourself. We've talked about this at great length in other places, but love one another is repeated at least 13 times in the New Testament and is the most frequently mentioned one another command. And as I said at the beginning, it is the first tangible evidence that you are in fact in Christ. John, 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if you're in Christ, you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just that simple. 
Maybe this is a point where you can be really honest with yourself and you say, I have no affection whatsoever for my brothers and sisters in Christ or for those that I think are my brothers and sisters in Christ simply because they are Christians. I hang out with and I spend time with people that are like me just like I would if I were not a Christian or didn't attend church. You need to be reconciled to God. You need to repent of sin, particularly of the sin of partiality, and turn to Christ for forgiveness so that you may belong to Him and that He, by His Spirit, would birth in you love for the brothers. Number six. God, in the Gospel, gives... uh, I'm sorry, equips us for the same mission. God, in the Gospel, equips us for the same mission. This one's a little bit more nuanced. So I want you to look at uh, verse... 13, near the end. Thus far, I've, uh, I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So his desire is that he would get to Rome and then reap a harvest. And this is Bible language for see many people come to know the Lord. So I want to come there. I'm eager to come there so that I can do mission work or evangelism and see people come to know Jesus. And then he gives us this parenthetical, verse 14, and uh, he says, I'm under obligation both to uh, to, to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Verse 15. So connect the end of verse 13 with verse 15. So, or therefore, because I want to reap this harvest, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And this is the pattern of Paul's missionary work. He goes to a place, he preaches the gospel, people become Christians by the working of the Spirit through repentance and belief, and he creates a church, the Spirit meaning, and, and you could call Paul the church planter, but it's really the Holy Spirit who births the church. And so you have a church there in any particular town, and and then he equips them. He teaches them about sometimes just a very few number of months, sometimes at the most around two years, and then he goes on. And he even says in one place that he, he wants to move on because there's no room for work for him anymore. How can he say that? Are there not people there that still need to be saved? No, the point is that Paul is preaching the gospel to people, equipping them for ministry, just as he says in Ephesians. And then they are supposed to carry on the mission after he leaves. So the gospel unifies us in giving us the same mission. Unity is what happens when we see that we all have the same mission. We don't have different ministries and missionaries and different things that we're all looking into. It's not like a you know one of those charts that goes into all these different areas, branching off into all the different, uh, different directions. It's the same mission. And I really hate how the title of minister has come to be used because in this sense... All Christians are supposed to be ministers. That the preachers, the pastors, the apostles, the teachers are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So you are a minister if you're in Christ. So it causes disunity to carve out for yourself a Christian life that is not ministry focused in this sense. There's no such thing as a Christian life that is not focused on and shunting all energies and resources towards the mission. We love our castles. We love our retirement. And we love letting pastors and missionaries carry out the work. Oh, but we'll send the money. And Jesus would say, just give all your money away to the poor right now so that you won't be prevented in following me directly. If that's what it's going to come to. You follow me. Number seven. God in the gospel gives us bad news or news bad enough to unify us. This may sound a little odd and this is, this is the place I'll uh, go out of order for the text just for purposes of encouragement. Hard times have a way of unifying people. I lived through... Um, 
Many of us remember 9-11. But it was remarkable, even though it didn't last long, the type of unity that uh, kind of permeated our nation after that tragedy. And we're kind of seeing something similar here. Maybe because the catastrophe is being strung out and and social media is even more powerful, we don't see as much unity as we did at that time. But for Christians, there is a singular event in the future that we can be as sure of as we are sure that we are breathing air. The day of the Lord will come. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. It's not just in some metaphysical sense or out there in the universe. The day of wrath is coming. And I want you to understand that I know this may grate some of you the wrong way, but I want you to see the wrath of God in and, and understand this pandemic that is going on in the context of the wrath of God. Let me be very clear what I mean here. I want you to go here with me. Luke 15. I'll just let Jesus speak because if I were to just say the same things, many of you might be offended. Well, providentially, I am going to have to summarize it because I wrote down the reference wrong. (laughs) So the context is that Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, hey, did you hear about Pilate who has mixed the blood of those Galileans with the sacrifice? And Jesus says, do you think that they were more guilty than you? But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he brings up another tragedy. The tower that fell and killed 18 people at Shalom. He says, do you think that they were greater sinners than you? No, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Leviticus 3.39 Why should any living mortal or any man offer a complaint in view of his sins? Paul says he has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Do you even understand what's coming? Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God. And the works that are done on the earth will be exposed. Tragedy, even what would seem like as the disciples are coming and asking Jesus about this, even random or what we would call uh, acts of God, you know, in the traditional sense, like a tornado or hurricane, these are meant to be warning signs. And it is not unkind for God to give us these warning signs, even as serious as a pandemic, to say, you don't understand what's coming. Do you think that you are more righteous than those who are falling dead because of COVID-19? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You need look no further than the cross. And this is how the gospel unifies us. The cross displays, yes, the love of God, but the terrifying prospect of facing the wrath of God, that this is what it looks like for God to pour out his wrath on a person. And that's what's coming. And you don't have to be a hellfire and brimstone preacher to believe that. This is simply what the Bible says. The day of the Lord's wrath is coming. 
And so that is news bad enough. That's a big enough catastrophe that we can be sure of through faith is going to happen one day that we can just set aside petty differences. You think that this pandemic is serious? You have no idea how bad the day of God's wrath is going to be. The crisis of the day of the wrath of God causes us to unify, commit ourselves to work hard together and work through real differences so that we can prepare ourselves, prepare our households and prepare the world for what is coming. Just think of Noah and his family. They knew that it was coming. The flood was coming. And God's wrath would pour out and cleanse the earth of sin. So for 120 years, they built the ark and they preached repentance. It can unify us. This news, this reality of the coming wrath of God can make us just set aside things that don't matter. Preferences that are so trivial in comparison to this bad news, this catastrophe that's on the horizon. However, God in the Gospel, this is number eight, gives us news good enough to unify us. Verse 16, back in Romans chapter 1. For I am not as ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Imagine using the example of COVID-19 again. If you found the perfect cure today, would you not want to Explain that to people. Would you not rejoice when that calls global rejoicing for you to find that solution? And we have a solution to a much bigger problem. The love of God in Christ who promised not merely one day to heal the sick, but to banish sickness and Satan and death. We have encountered, we know the God and we have been brought into a relationship with Him. The God who raises the dead. If you find the solution today to COVID-19, that doesn't help the 32,000 that have already died. But the Gospel raises the dead. Even though we will all one day die, the hope of the Gospel is a hope beyond the grave that it is even dynamic and powerful enough to reverse that. You have it. We have the good news. All the blessings of salvation are yours in Christ. He will make all things new. And you, friend, can enter into the kingdom of His marvelous light through faith in Him. That is such good news. And it is made better news by the fact that it is the resolve or the answer to this horrible news of the coming of God's wrath because we're sinners. And Jesus deals with our sin and offers us forgiveness through faith in Him. Number nine, God in the Gospel gives us a hope strong enough to sustain us together. Say that again. God in the Gospel gives us a hope strong enough to sustain us together. You can see this in verse 17, the one, the passage we looked at last week. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says in Romans 5.2 that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Remember, a few weeks ago we talked about the interrelationship between God's glory and His righteousness. And God is righteous primarily because He regards Himself rightly. And He has committed to glorify His name in all the earth. And that is the right thing for Him to do because He is the most glorious being And He has committed all His energies to glorify His name. And He's bringing us in so that we would glorify Him together. And that is why salvation matters. And that He wants us to see and magnify and glorify His grace forever. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The hope that we are given, which we can see by faith, is a hope that the glory and righteousness of God will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. For the kingdom of God, this is Romans fourteen seventeen. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here's an example. If you've ever been to a midnight premiere, you know exactly the flavor of what I'm talking about. You're excited. You're eager. You want to see this and you're willing to wait into the wee hours of the morning or late in the evening, depending on when you bought your ticket and how long you have to wait in line, because you want to experience that thing that's at the end of this wait. You want to be there alongside other people and you may not know the person standing in line next to you from Adam, but because you know the fact that they're there with you waiting to weather the elements and wait to see that movie with you, that you have a commonality that is in some ways deeper than you have with your own family maybe. And so as we wait as brothers and sisters in Christ for the revealing of God's righteousness, that the gospel reveals his righteousness and promises that one day Jesus will rule in righteousness over the whole earth, that that longing creates in us a patience and a love for one another that is very difficult to explain. There is a simple and beautiful unity that is formed between those who want the same thing and want it enough to set aside things that get in the way, like sin, prejudice, pride, and selfishness. Number 10, God, through the gospel, creates the church. This might, you might say, well, this should have been the first thing we talked about. Well, maybe so, but it's kind of in the order of As these phrases are mentioned, he says the righteous will live by faith. And he's not just talking about the righteous person by himself. There are so many examples in the Old Testament where you can see the righteous, even used in a singular grammatical setting, stands to refer to all the righteous. The righteous person is is also the righteous in general. There's some New Testament examples as well. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Salvation then is being united with Christ. And becoming a Christian, salvation and unity with Christ, all these things are tied up in and and married in this idea of being made righteous. So what does this have to do with the gospel? The gospel is built on the premise that no one is righteous. Paul says that very explicitly in Romans 3. No one does good. No one seeks for God. No one is righteous. So if the hope is for us to be righteous through faith, then that righteousness has to come from someone else. Jesus, then, is the only truly righteous one. So through faith in Jesus, the free gift of righteousness, even Jesus' own righteousness, is yours. So this offer of salvation isn't just individualistic. It is to all those who have faith in Him. And the righteous, all the righteous, together will live together by faith in Christ. And if that is not true of you, if what I've been describing here in the love you're meant to have for brothers and sisters in Christ, the heart for righteousness, the common mission, the bad news and the good news, if that has caused just discontinuity and frustration in your heart, I ask that you would hear me. Entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. Hopefully in a time like this where everything seems chaotic, where no one has the right answers, even though many purport that they do, maybe now in the humbling of our nation, in the humbling of our world, maybe you can see you don't have the resources, you don't have the wisdom to sustain yourself. You can't save yourself. So entrusting yourself to Christ, giving yourself to Him, saying, I follow you, is what it means to be reconciled to Him and to receive His righteousness. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the unity that the Gospel creates. It gives us bad news enough to unify us, good news enough to unify us. I pray that we would take advantage of that. that this would not be a social club or maybe even for the next several months something we just tune into. But a real sense of belonging We belong to one another, but more than that, we belong to You together. Help us see our brothers and sisters in Christ in this way and help us set aside petty differences and frustrations with each other so that we may truly be one so that the world would know that You have sent Your Son, Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.